the reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 3, reading verses 27 to 31. I invite your hearing of the public reading of God's worth, both in reverence but with also faith. From Romans chapter 3. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So then, we overthrow, do we overthrow uh, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Well, please join me for another time of prayer. Now, Father, again, we come before you. We bow our heads to you in worship and praise and adoration of the one true living God. Uh, we are uh, uh, awed by the majesty of God, enthroned on high. Uh, God the Father, maker of all things in the heavens and the earth. Uh, God the Son, the only begotten of the Father, very God of very God. And God the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. We are thankful, O Father, for your fatherly care, for we are in such need of it. Uh, we come and we gather in all measures of weakness and uh, distress, uh, and yet you are there. You are here. You are in the midst of our circumstances. Um, and you watch over us. We thank you for your fatherly care. And thank you that we may entreat your blessings. Uh, for the sick, we pray for healing. For the discouraged, we pray for encouragement. And uh, for those uh, perplexed uh, in ways to go and their circumstances, we pray you would guide them by your spirit and by the wisdom of the scriptures. Some may be grieving. We pray for comfort. Um, we would pray for all of us that you would protect us from uh, physical dangers, the spread of disease, the spread of lawlessness, but more so from the spread of spiritual dangers which abound. We come and we gather as a congregation, and so we have congregational needs to love one another, uh, in sincerity, uh, to be patient with one another, to encourage one another that we might all be constant in prayer, uh, to live peaceably with all people, and to show kindness, even to those who oppose us. And as we go through these times of uh, distress and circumstances, we pray that you would give us the peace that passes understanding, and you would intervene on our behalf in ways that are wise and good. And we leave to you the outcomes. Only help us to be faithful. We do pray for those um, in physical persecution, the church in Afghanistan, uh, for those in perhaps the Congo, enduring physical persecution that we know not of. Um, and we pray for them. But may we be like-minded with them to be faithful through all sorts of persecutions here. Uh, looking to you to guide and to provide. And now we come, Father, 
And we pray for your blessings upon the Word. Your Word is a lamp to our feet, is a light to our path, and it gives us skill for living. So bless your Word to us this morning. Bless Phil as he holds forth from the book of Romans. And may your Word go forth in power and accomplish the purposes whereunto you send it for us this morning and for thy glory we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayer. Uh, fundamental to uh, Protestant uh, theology is that uh, salvation is a gift from God based entirely on the achievements and the merits of Jesus Christ. Because God is a perfect God. He does not accept imperfection. He doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't forget. And so it's of radical importance that we understand how God gives to us this gift that uh, we do not deserve and certainly could not earn. And yet, many Christians do depart from it. Um, and implicit in our text, certainly implicit, not explicit, is, is a warning that once you depart from this theology, you fundamentally change the gospel, and you also fundamentally change our faith. Uh, the essence of our text this morning is that uh, since... Justification is received by faith alone. Uh, we, we cannot boast. Uh, we cannot brag on some achievement. Uh, we cannot think that, well, that check I wrote, that gained me merits in heaven. Uh, or the building that I built for the glory of God, that gives me merits in heaven. Uh, no. Paul is going to nullify uh, and obviate all boasting. Why is that? Because salvation is a gift and it's entirely based upon the work of Christ, not our work. Everything about our salvation is based upon the work of Christ. Perhaps uh, some, some review is, is uh, noteworthy. Uh, we've uh, discussed that justification is entirely a legal declaration. It's not a moral event at all. It's not inherent within us. It's entirely and solely a declaration by the court of heaven. The court makes a decree, declares us to be righteous. Uh, one of the great, perhaps the greatest, Reformed confessional statement is uh, the Westminster Standards. The Shorter Catechism uh, defines justification this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight. So pardon and accepted. Now, hear the rest of it. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's been the standard for Reformed churches throughout the centuries, and certainly the Westminster divines were simply rediscovering that which the church had lost in a period of great prolonged darkness. It's always been the theology of the Scriptures. They're simply recovering 
But again, receive by faith alone because it's entirely a gift based upon the righteousness of Christ. No other intervening righteousness whatsoever. And the moment you intervene with something, you begin to change our faith. And therefore, the gift is totally by and of God. Since dead men cannot believe, sovereign grace is implied. Uh, so much so that in the divine order of salvation, regeneration precedes faith. Born again, men believe. Their faith engages. And Paul affirms that it's uh, received as a gift by faith alone. It's absent any works because the law demands perfections. Who among us is perfect? None of us. And therefore, we turn to the perfections of the obedience of Christ. We understand that we are not perfectly obedient, so in the doctrine of justification, we repair entirely to Christ's obedience that is a perfect obedience. And we receive it as a gift by faith. And therefore, we have excluded all boasting. Uh, Paul is explicit in that, verses uh, 27 to 28. Justification excludes boasting. Illustration of this in the next chapter, uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul will establish in that chapter that Abraham... Our forefather was not justified by works, justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. And because justification is entirely a work of God, it's implied that we do not participate, therefore boasting's obviated. Uh, Paul says um, uh, in, in the text, uh, it's excluded. The verb is literally to shut out. In the Greek text, it's a compound verb, which in some cases, not always, intensifies the verbal force. I think it's uh, intensified here. He is slamming the door, nailing it shut. If it's a metal door, he's welding it shut. He's totally rejecting any form of human participation and therefore all boasting. Because God does it all. Because he does it all, what can we boast on? Imagine me coming to your home and say, boy, this is a cool home I built. You're going to say, what? I built this home. What could I boast in building your home when I did absolutely nothing in building your home? Or what if I went into your backyard and said, boy, those are beautiful roses that I planted. You're going to say, what? (laughs) Now, you know, uh, how much I love gardening. Um, always invited by people that I dearly love to garden with them. Uh, when I hear the door slam, I know I'm off the hook, but um, at least for a season. But, but again, that's what people who brag about something they've done as meritorious before God, they're, uh, they're intruding upon the divine work of God. So, again, they should be very, very careful. Um, We should boast, of course, but in God alone, in Christ alone. Uh, 
And it's a reminder that this embraces all religion, which are simply human attempts to find God. In our faith, God found us. Um, and the explicit uh, reading uh, reason that justification uh, excludes boasting is that we receive it entirely by faith, exclusive of works. Notice verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, complementary text here is Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The moment you go down the works of cooperating or supplementing or adding to the obedience and the work of Jesus Christ, you're intruding on fairly dangerous ground. And since it's not by works, justification, again, received entirely by faith alone, verses 29 to 30. It's very interesting in this text um, that Paul uh, repairs to the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's one God. And notice what Paul says in verse 30. If indeed God is one, and He is, there's one God, and He justifies everyone in the same way. But the importance of, of that verse, I think, is found in, in the context. Uh, so again, if you're not in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I encourage you to repair there. Uh, I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Uh, God is uh, telling them, uh, beginning in verse 10, that this land that I gave you, I gave it to you as a gift. Uh, based upon the gift that He promised to Abraham. Totally exclusive of works. They didn't earn a thing about the land of Canaan. But it's really more profound than that because they didn't just get land. They got everything in the land. Notice the text. Uh, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you shall eat and be satisfied. Goes on to warn him, therefore, be careful lest you forget me. Unless you think that you deserved all of this when it was given to you as a gift. Or lest you think in some way that you participated in digging the cisterns and planting the olive trees when you didn't participate at all. Because I gave it to you totally and entirely as a gift. And therefore, the corollary is that justification is entirely a gift from God. No participation. Entirely based upon the obedience of Christ. Uh, because the law tells us if we're not perfectly obedient, we're under the judgment of the law. And therefore, we repair entirely to the obedience of Christ. So it was in His giving of the gift of the land, so it is with the doctrine of justification. Of course, here Paul is affirming the continuity of 
of the grace of God, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Let me give you another illustration of this that highlights our salvation as a gift of sovereign grace. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. It's part of a sermon. He is the one whom, whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior. So Christ, it's a reference to Jesus Christ. Now what did Christ do? Notice what the text says. To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. He granted it as a gift. There's nothing in that text that says they participated or they earned or they were deserving. He granted it. Even their repentance. Fundamental to our faith is uh, faith and repentance. And yet here, repentance is a gift from God to those who He's saving among Israel. Turn to Acts chapter 11. The context is the home of Cornelius. God is saving Gentiles. Some of the Jews that were present were saying, what in the world is going on? God doesn't save Gentiles, does He? Notice what the text says. Peter gives an answer, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. How did He save the Jews? The gift of grace. How does He save Gentiles? The gift of grace. The Scriptures are explicit in affirming that it's a gift. No one in the household of Cornelius stood up and said, wait a minute, I cooperated. I participated. No, it's entirely a gift of grace. And therefore the Gentiles were received into the church because of the gift of grace. In terms of theological controversy, um, most American churches, certainly some of the largest American churches, uh, believe, of course, in, in faith. But they believe in faith and works. Uh, God does His part. And we have to do our part. And uh, based upon God doing His part and our part, we were justified. Nowhere is that found in Scripture, but it is found explicitly in many of the writings of uh, Christian denominations in the United States. Let me read to you from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, keep in mind um, how it runs against the grain of the Westminster Confession and even the words of the Apostle Paul. Justification is conferred in baptism. It makes us inwardly just and establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. Again, cooperation. It's a work in the heart. Some measure of moral renewal. In our theology, justification is a legal declaration based entirely on the work of Christ. No cooperation from us at all. One of the 
ways that the Roman Catholic Church countered the Protestant Reformation uh, was the Council of Trent, where they concretized uh, their understanding of the doctrine of justification in opposition to uh, the Protestant reformers. We read to you Canon 9. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be cursed. Well, Roman Catholic Church is pretty clear that they're rejecting uh, the Protestant Reformation. Canon 11, if anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be cursed. Uh, I mean, that is a 180 degrees out from uh, every Reformed confessional statement, and certainly the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, no, it's worse than that. Uh, Genesis to Revelation, the Scriptures are clear. The grace of God, it's a gift based entirely and solely on His work. So, it's good to remember that um, theological controversy abounds, but it should drive us to the clarity of our faith. Paul's assertion is that our faith is without works, which excludes an inherent righteousness and mandates an alien righteousness, namely the righteousness of someone else. Who is that someone else? Christ and Christ alone. One of the reasons that faith and works uh, fails, of course, certainly is Scripture. If you think about the book of Romans, Paul is establishing that men are totally depraved and totally unable to cooperate. That's Romans 1-3. to I mean, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Not even one. So how does that person cooperate with God within his innermost beings? for more renewal for God to justify him. Well, to me, the language is fairly clear. So that salvation is a gift not based on anything within us or without us, but totally based upon the work of Christ. Totally and entirely. Thirdly, remind you of something that I alluded to earlier. Faith itself is a gift from God. The great tragedy in much of this is some Christians, absent the clarity of the Scriptures, believe that we participate and uh, our faith causes regeneration which logically means that it's meritorious and God responds to something that we do. Meaning that God is not the sole cause. 
Therefore, we participate. We have faith, and based on our faith, he justifies us. Again, let's repair to the scripture. And turn to fairly some very common texts here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. When Paul uses the word that, he's encompassing faith. We have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. Why is that? Because dead men cannot exercise faith. They're spiritually dead. There's no righteousness within them at all. And so even the faith that we use to apprehend the majesty of the gift is from the great giver himself, God in his power. And again, Paul appends, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. We, ladies and gentlemen, brought nothing because we had nothing to bring. And therefore, we receive this great gift of salvation. Another one of my favorite verses is Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Let's leave aside the suffering. Which is also part of the Christian faith. But God granted to us to believe based upon Christ. In the eternal covenant of redemption, Christ said, I will purchase all my elect. And based upon the covenant of redemption in eternity past, uh, God granted to us grace that we would believe. To me, that's a staggering reminder of the grace of God. That even the means by which we apprehended Him part of His grace that He made our will willing in the day of His power. I'm not suggesting we don't have a will. I affirm that we have a will. I'm just affirming that it wasn't free because it was under the bondage of sin. Critical to the entire Protestant Reformation. Remind you that Martin Luther, perhaps one of his greatest books, was the bondage of the will. He takes the Roman Catholic theologian Erasmus to task. Again, if you understand simply Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, radically affirming that our will was under bondage and we needed God to save us and God in His grace saves His people. Thank God. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification, an act of God's free grace. 
should be obvious in this language that we were done for and that God did all the doing. I remind you this is Romans 4. Pretty soon we'll be in Romans 5. But at some point in Romans, we're going to trigger our doing but not respecting the doctrine of justification at all. When it comes to the isolation of that doctrine, which is much of the subject matter of Romans 3-5, through God is the one doing, and we're the ones done for. Highlighting, we have no occasion to boast because we couldn't participate and because we didn't do any of it. He did it all. And thank God, because uh, soon Paul will affirm of the assurance of our final salvation. You know why we have assurance? You know why we believe in the security of the believer? Because, because there's one person who did it whose work cannot be undone. And thank God for that. Anything that I participate in can be undone. I pull a weed at my house. Guess what? Next week it comes back. I fix anything at my home. At some point, time wins. have to refix it. Doesn't apply to God. He does something. It's done forever. He saves his people forever based upon the obedience and the merits of Christ in Christ alone. That's why we have assurance. By the way, that's why the Roman Catholic Church and their theology, they have no assurance whatsoever. Consistent with their theology. When it's based upon your work, you can't be too sure of anything. Paul here is affirming our salvation is based solely on the work of Christ. In verse 31, uh, Paul tells us that justification by faith alone does not nullify the law. We, uh, we're not justified by law work, so does this nullify the law? Paul says absolutely not. Uh, doesn't invalidate the law. Paul answers with a very powerful negation. May it never be. And this is true for a number of reasons. The law is still in force. That's true, certainly respecting our sanctification. Because as Christians, we are to obey. And yet, it's the reminder that our obedience caused by the grace of God and the Spirit of God is not salvific or meritorious. Uh, it's good to remember that the law was never meant to justify because it can't justify, it only condemns. I mean, think about it in this way. If someone were to come to me and Phil say, well, look, th- uh, this is my theological background and uh, I believe that I cooperate. I would say something like, do you cooperate perfectly and totally and entirely? Because that's the function of the law. The law demands perfection. Not just on one day, every day. So raise your hands if you think <laughs> your works are perfect, totally and entirely, absolutely through the entirety of your life. None of us will admit to that. And therefore, the law condemns us, condemns us all. In my case, chases us, 
to the obedience of our great and only Savior. That's a function of the law that we should use today. Someone says, God does his part and I do mine. We should say, well, is your part perfect? Well, it's, oh, no, it's not perfect. Of course not. Well, then the law has you by the throat. It's meant to chase you to Christ in just that way. So it points us and convicts us of the need for our great Savior who fulfilled the law for us. Again, I remind you, it's His obedience. He came, assumed a human nature, and He obeyed all the law every day of His life. And the merits of His obedience is what's charged to us. His obedience, not ours. So it drives us to the grace of God. Uh, and that grace is also in the Spirit. At some point here in our study of the book of Romans, uh, we're going to deal with how does the Christian deal with sin? Uh, Paul will tell us uh, one of the great ways is the grace of God in the giving of the Spirit. Sanctification. Which is also a work of God's free grace. That's why we, uh, we reject antinomianism. Uh, the antinomian, uh, as the name implies, is against the law. He contends for faith minus all other saving graces. Uh, we would affirm that while faith is the sole instrument of justification, uh, it's never alone in the Christian who goes on to experience uh, the grace of God in sanctification. Again, some of these are future doctrines. We're isolating the doctrine of justification. But we don't deny the importance of obedience and of works. We're just affirming they don't justify us. They come under a different theological heading. Again, it is of radical importance that you understand that when we say uh, faith alone, pertaining to the doctrine of justification. When we turn the chapter and come to the doctrine of sanctification, our faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. But even those works are not meritorious because we are saved entirely and totally on the merits of the work of the obedience of Christ. It's very important that you understand, some of you are saying, Phil, what is the big deal? The big deal is to understand the generational effect uh, when you depart from the theology of the Protestant Reformation. Profound generational effect. Uh, Because uh, we live in a world in which there is another party that contends for our souls and our lives. And that party is the Prince of Darkness. And his expertise is deception. His expertise is exploiting inconsistency and confusion in theology. Remind you, as I learned this from a dear friend of mine, 
that this is graphically displayed for us in the first pages of the book of Genesis. Garden of Eden was a temple where Adam and Eve worshipped and served God. One day, the serpent entered the garden. If you will, entered the church. And Adam permitted him to remain there and seduce his wife. And so that the great office of the great deceiver who is our arch foe is to trick us, confuse us, deceive us, and to tolerate that which is intolerable. When you look at the great battles in the life of the church, 4th, 5th centuries, Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagian theology is uh, very popular in the, in the American church that we can reform ourselves and God will base us, save us, pardon me, based upon our self-reformation. Think about that. No such thing as self-justification. And yet, many people seem to go down that road. I mentioned earlier Luther and Erasmus. And yet, why is it that Pelagius and Erasmus have seemingly won the day? It's because we live in a world in which uh, there is our arch enemy who is... Uh, a great counterfeiter. And so we must always be on our guard lest our faith be counterfeited, lest we fall prey to confusion. Let me give you an illustration. When uh, My uh, wife and I were uh, in the city of uh, Cologne in Germany, just across uh, the, the Rhine River, um, going to this architectural, uh, majestic work, the Cathedral of Cologne. Uh, tons of art. I was attracted to one piece. A sarcophagus. Saying to myself, what in the world is this skeleton doing in this church? It's because it wasn't just a skeleton. It was a skeleton of a saintly person. And if I were to ever to embrace that sarcophagus in prayer, he would wake up in heaven and earn from me merits that God would accept so that I could get out of purgatory, enter eternity. My friends, we don't need a sarcophagus. We have Jesus Christ, the living one. There's no merits whatsoever in bones. The saints do not perform meritorious works for us. Christ does. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, Mary, whom we revere and we respect, is a mediator, but not for us. 
There's one mediator between God and man, and that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the merits of his work alone that we receive as a gift for our salvation. And thank God. It's very interesting when you study generational effects. One of the great Reformed confessional statements is the Synod of Dort. Answer to the remonstrants who were changing the theology of the doctrines of justification by grace through faith alone. So the Dutch church meets and rejects it. Who do you think's won the battle? Dort or the Arminians? Very tragic to say that many American churches are the followers of Jacob Arminius. They just don't know it. We should know it to check and counter the work of the master counterfeiter who enters the church to corrupt it. After the Synod of Dort, in the French church, who confessed the Synod of Dort, uh, there was a theological seminary at Saumur in France. And one of the most well-known professors was a man by the name of Amiro, established a theology called Amiraldianism. I suspect none of you have ever heard of that term, but none, nonetheless, it's very popular in the American church today. He held to hypothetical redemption and hypothetical universalism. I bet you've heard of those because the American church believes in hypothetical universalism. Christ died for everybody. It's just left for us to believe and accept him by faith. We would affirm that Christ died for the elect. I don't know who they are, so I preach the gospel to all men, trying to turn them to Jesus Christ, knowing full well that only in the power of the Spirit can their hearts be turned. I can only turn their ears. God alone can turn their hearts and grant them the repentance that leads to life everlasting. Phil, why is that important? If you think of the church in France, the Protestant church in France is virtually non-existent. Emeraldianism took hold. The French church is by and large totally an entirely Roman Catholic, which believes what? That we can cooperate with God and that within our hearts we can self-reform. And mixing that with the reformation of the grace of God, we can participate and cooperate in our salvation. So that throughout the generations of the church, theology is profoundly important. It's certainly important in this church. Radically important. I would remind you, when you pulled into the uh, parking lot, you passed our little nondescript sign, Grace Bible Church, proclaiming the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God. That He sovereignly, by His power, gratuitously saves His people by His grace. You go into the fellowship hall. There is a representation of the Reformation wall in Geneva. By the way, the Genevan church went the way of Amaraldianism. Who cares? We care. 
That's why that wall is there, that representation of that wall is there, to remind people this is a Reformed church. We hold to the doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. When you came into our sanctuary, you went by a cross. On that cross were the five solas. Three of those solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not just on a cross or a wall or on a sign. Represented in the pulpit. So history is very important. Scripture, of course, is vitally important. History warns us, be careful about our theology. Scripture tells us explicitly. Paul rejects faith plus works and affirms the gift of the grace of God who saves his people entirely based upon the work and obedience of his son that he imputed in sovereign grace to their account as the sole basis of their salvation and the entire basis of our final assurance and security as Christians. That is what we believe and affirm. I trust, I trust the words of the Apostle Paul uh, is your confession as well. And may uh, God's grace be forever with us uh, to check the errors of our great counterfeiter and to hold fast these great confessions for the glory of Christ alone.